0: Hi, I'm your host, Kimberly Thomas-Tigg, and you're listening to Signalize, a Dazzle for Rare podcast. Whether you're a patient, advocate, caregiver, or clinician, Signalize is your source for good news, personal stories, events, and the things that rare and associated communities care about. Follow Signalize and Dazzle for Rare at D-A-Z-Z-L-E, the number 4, R-A-R-E, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we'll post episode links, updates, and more. On today's episode of Signalize a Dazzle for Our podcast, we're joined by Dr. Sandra Butterworth, PhD. Sandra is a community health psychologist and so much more. Since discovering she was a carrier for a rare gene, she began to examine the patient journey and how patient narratives can impact the diagnostic journey. Through her work with RareQual, they released Whose Voice Is It Anyway? It was a rare community networking campaign. She's collaborated with Medics for Rare Disease and participated in many rare disease consultations and other collaborative projects.
1: So nice to be here. Um, thank you very much for in- the invitation. Um, yeah, I'm Sandra Butterworth, and um, I actually live in North Wales and at the moment when I was coming down to the office, because the office is just a few minutes walk from my house, I was walking through the freezing cold but I was just thinking it's such a nice sunny day and I'm coming to do something really nice. So I'm in a very good mood. So thank you very much for inviting me Kimberly.
0: I know you a little bit now as people will have heard and I think a lot of folks in the rare disease communities here in the UK the sort of greater area know you, but for folks who might be listening from the US or folks who, for whatever reason, have not yet spoken to you, can you tell us a little bit about what you do?
1: I'm from a rare disease family, and I'm a carrier of a rare disease myself, and I'm the founder of Qual. Or rare quality of life, which is a small social enterprise based in North Wales, as I said. And um, rare qual came about because of my—I was studying for a PhD, and it was based around trying to have a better, more academic, I suppose, understanding of rare diseases. And growing up in in the as being a person of colour or a black woman, seeing the health and social care sector from the family perspective, um, finding that we weren't always able to get the right diagnosis or treatment, or people there was a lack of understanding from myself. In how to navigate the systems, if you like. Um, But I started out as a nurse, to be perfectly honest. um, And then I wanted to become a teacher and a psychologist. So I took a degree in psychology. And I thought I would transfer from being a nurse to a clinical psychologist, but then I felt I wanted to work in a community-based setting. I wanted to do a PhD in community psychology, but that doesn't exist. So, any psychologists and academics out there, please do one. Um, it would. So, I did a PhD in health and social care, but because my masters and my ordinary degree was in psychology, I was able to combine all those into what I do now, which is community psychology. So bringing all that together, then um, I was doing my PhD. And in that, it was focusing on rare conditions, but specifically on rare genetic skin conditions to start with. And then it broadened out to looking at um, people living with rare conditions but skin and connective tissue disorders and things and one of the things that i was doing was trying to um find a unique way of telling the story so i wanted to be able to do um mixed methods research and that's what i did with this so it was based on getting the quantitative data So, you know, questionnaires and so on. And the stories from people living with rare conditions. And what I did was I used a method known as triangulation, where you get all different types of of evidence together. And then you find the common point to be able to to come to a conclusion or a suggestion about a way forward and so on. So towards the end of my PhD, I was coming to the conclusion that there were a lot of people who had had very difficult diagnostic journeys. They weren't being listened to for various different reasons. Some because they felt that they, because of their gender, because they were women, a hysterical woman, go away, you've got EDS, you haven't got EDS, it's not that. You know, that type of thing. And some of the women's stories were quite devastating, really. Uh, Some of them had very visual differences and then they were stigmatized because of that and so on and so forth. And then I put those stories together with the, the... quantitative data set to be able to come to a conclusion and the conclusion i came towards the end of my phd was that i need to do something which is where rare qual came about so trying to improve the quality of life for people with rare diseases how can we do this in a way that's meaningful to the patients that's led by the people that's from the grassroots from diverse communities, because rare disease research doesn't seem to belong to the rare disease community. It belongs to the people who make money from the rare disease community, from the far... Sorry, guys, but that's the reality. Um, The farmer academics who get so much money for funding, for research, et cetera, et cetera. And I just felt the narrative needs to change. I get asked a lot, will you help us, Sandra, with our research? Will you help us, Sandra, so we can get more funding to go and do more research on stuff to do with you? Sandra, can you come to London to speak to these people to do this? Oh, and we'll give you a £20 gift voucher for your trouble. Thank you very much, but no thanks. Um, so what, and I found that a lot of people within the rare disease communities are being asked the same thing. But then when we want to try to do the research ourselves or to be involved more, we haven't got the funds. We haven't got the resources. We can't apply for the funds. And so I just feel as though it's time for change, guys. Come on. So I just want rare qual to becoming a charity, yay, yeah, yeah, hopefully in the new year. But I want it to be something that we can we can, we're in the driving seat. Those of us who have rare conditions, we've got stuff to say. We've got stuff to say. You need to listen to us. Our diagnostic journey is our lived experience and we're experts in that. Listen to us. But the thing is it's happening. People are listening because now researchers and clinical people who design clinical trials, et cetera, they're being told that they have to include patients. It's like, and I had to, I tittered away. I tittered away when I saw the change. Um, And I was contacted by one organization actually and this is how we're leading to Adira. I was contacted by an organization in another country, actually. They Googled inclusive research and we came up, yay! And um, she was very, very honest enough to say that they were scientific researchers and they um, they had to look at how to include patients. They'd fin- nearly finished the funding application and then they realized that the section where it says include the patient, they hadn't done it. And she was honest enough to say, the thing is, we don't really deal with whole people. We only deal with bits of people. We only deal with blood samples and tissues and bone samples and test tubes, etc. So we don't really know, although we're in the rare disease space doing research with or on rare disease patients, we don't really communicate with whole people
0: you know and if I can interject for a second that really makes Mm. me think about healthcare as a whole because as a patient or as a human being first and then a patient and then all the other things that we are in our lives when we go in we're looked at as a file we're not really a person Mm. we're looked at as a set of uh, test results you know we might be looked at by a specialty so our brain might be looked Mm. at or our lungs or other organs but there are very few times in which we're put together into an entire person and looked at exactly. through our throughout our variety of experiences. So, mm. And it's also interesting mm. about the trials because I kind of came from that space fairly recently and listening to conversations about how in the U.S. Uh, researchers are now, that's part of their mandate is really to include this information and folks don't know how. <laughs> so they're looking around, literally like looking on the internet, looking anywhere they can, to find folks who have the experience to help lead them, because now this is becoming more of a priority. It is in the United States, and we're seeing it, I think, start to become more of a priority here in the UK.
1: Absolutely. Even the BMJ is saying, you know, this, you've got to put a statement in your in your articles if you're going to submit a paper about um, how you've included people, whole people, whole people, not bits, in the research. And I think it's freaking people out, because it's like, oh God, we've got to start, We've got to start including people. So this is where the Qual has developed into the Adira project, which is something that um, we're going to be doing more of. The idea is that um, when I was doing the uh, finishing off my PhD, thinking about what next and all this sort of thing, it was ironic because it was around the same time as the Rare Diseases Framework came out. And one of the key themes, the underpinning themes, there's a few underpinning themes and one theme that sort of pushed out at me based on what I've just said is the voices of people with rare conditions when people are making decisions about our services that affect us and so on and at first I thought this is brilliant finally but it seems to be a rhetoric and then it's like I don't see as much evidence of the authentic voices that are being heard. I see interpretations of people's voices. So you get um, people who haven't got rare conditions or people who are not diverse or from, you know, or underserved, etc. They may be consulted upon and then someone else who's not from that community then interprets their story. And then you get it gets lost in translation, in my opinion.
0: Part of me also wonders if what they're doing is sort of looking at these sort of isolated patient narratives and compositing in their mind what the ideal patient for the trial would be, the ideal candidate mm. would be. And I don't know with any certainty. And so I would always love to have someone come on and challenge some of that at my assumption that are we really getting unfiltered stories are we really getting unfiltered mm. histories or are we sort of getting in some cases composites from different medical records of people with the same condition mm. or other ways of, of yeah. looking at the patient
1: I agree I mean one of the things that uh, I love this um this author Arthur Frank uh, have you heard of the wounded storyteller because I feel as though that's what a lot of us are those of us with you know long time I've got have quite a few long-term health conditions, but I look fabulous and so nobody knows, you know, as you do. Could be are on today. <laughs> um, but without, when bodies have voices, which, which sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier about the person who contacted us and, so, you know, and saying, well, we don't deal with whole people, we deal with bits of bodies. But, you know, th- that body belongs to a person and that person has a voice. And that voice allows people to talk not just about their illness but through their illness through the experience of their illness and um, I think it's an important thing and so the next stage of my journey to a postdoctoral world or whatever is to try to build a strong basis for mixed methodology in the rare disease space. It's hard doing mixed methods because you've got to know about qualitative and quantitative. And I don't know anybody, any other. the diverse people who do mixed methodologies in the way I do. I don't know. Please tell me if you're out there, it'd be great to hook up, let, as they say. Is that what they say in America? Uh, yeah,
0: hook we up. do. We say, yeah, not in a sexy okay. way, though. Yeah. We just use it as a blanket term in America, I think. But uh, I hope just, uh, yeah. you know, that let's way, hook yeah. up, um, but not like, let's hook up. Eh. Um, yeah. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, okay. nudge. But like, I, I would agree. So I'm going to second that if there is anybody in the audience listening, this particular podcast, and I think a lot of what we do in our communities, is collaborative. And so we are looking for folks who have the missing pieces of the expertise. So, you know, with mm. you and I and with other folks in our groups, we all have unique skill sets. We all have unique talents. Absolutely. We've all come from yeah. not only different industries, you know, so sales, marketing, marketing different types of media creation, um, medical backgrounds, and also we bring with us our experience as patients or as uh, carriers. Mm. And so like you mentioned earlier, Mm. uh, being a carrier of a gene, that's kind of going slightly off topic, but is that something that you can, you feel comfortable talking more about?
1: It, I didn't um, even know I was. And a lot of uh, that my sister's got sarcoidosis and my brother's had non-Hodgkin's limb lymphoma and my nephew's got a rare heart condition and a learning disability. And we've all carriers of thalassemia. And they, it just goes on, the amount of t- <laughs> different diabetes and kidney failure. And there's, there's an asthma, I've got asthma as well. Uh, so there's lots of things that we have that overlap with each other. So, yeah, I think... As a, with, the, with the carrier, I didn't really know. It was as I was older and I was doing, just getting checkups, it was just found by mistake. And it was interesting because when my daughter was um, having a children and a baby and everything, and that's when it hit me, I thought, oh, if she's a carrier as well, and her partner is... And the the consequence of that could be quite serious. So, you know, I, I used to say, oh, I'm only a carrier, isn't I? but then that was a reality that hit me about, and it took me back to some of the women who I'd interviewed um, for the Ph for my PhD. And one woman was saying the guilt that she felt because she lost her daughter, um, and the guilt that she felt about her daughter she felt that she'd given her daughter this rare condition and it was her fault that her daughter died.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: And do you know what I mean? And it, and you just feel, I, I had a sense of it. I had a sense of it then. So there are quite a lot of people who are just carriers. It, and I'd like to say, don't just, don't say just because there's, yes, you know, I don't have really have symptoms or anything, but anemic or anything. Um, but, you know, there are people who are carriers, but the consequence for them is still quite important and everything. But it, what was interesting, I had to go to hospital in the middle of COVID. I was ill. And um, and they said, do you know you've got thalassemia? And they got very, uh, like, concerned for me. And they said, oh, we'll have to do a sickle cell test. Have and I said, no, I said, they're not, they're, they're not the same condition. But these are people in the health profession who didn't know. And this was just after the, there'd been quite a few things. We won't divert into it, but there's quite a few things in the paper about sickle cell and, and everything as well. And I started, I had to reassure them. I, they're different, they're different. Stop, everybody stop. It's fine. It's fine. I haven't got sickle cell, I'm sure. You know, that, <laughs> what you say there brings
0: up a really important point is that a lot of the time, yeah. whatever, wherever we are in our individual genetic journey, it sounds weird to say that, but when we encounter healthcare professionals, we're educating them a lot of the time.
1: Yes, that was one of the themes from my my study. It's generally I know that anyway. Yeah, but that's taken us back then to the the wounded storyteller, um, because the idea is that the patients are, have their lived experience. You know, they they have this diagnostic journey that sometimes goes on for one, two, three, ten plus years. So in that time the patients or we people have collected a lot of data and is having an understanding that research isn't just about facts and figures and test tubes and clinical settings. So what I'm trying to think of is advocating if you design in a study, for example, yes, you have to have the clinical outputs and you have to have the clinical endpoints of a drug trial or whatever. But then there's the other endpoints and the other the story of the patient before they started that therapy, during that drug therapy or whatever, and then after, because all that gives a holistic picture. So what I did with, with my research, I'm continuing to do it now, to be honest, is if you had a lot of statistics and you had a lot of numbers and then you can look at all the numbers and then they analyse, they say, oh, this one and one equals two. Oh, that, that equals two. And you can see patterns in the numbers. And those patterns in the numbers will tell people how well or not well the person is, depending on their blood pressure. So there's patterns in the numbers that give the medical profession an overview as to how that body is behaving.
0: So I came from the US and I lived the first 30 years of my life in the United States. And one of the things I always marvel at here is when I would go to my GP in the US, they would start every appointment with a nurse practitioner who would take down data points. So they would take down my blood pressure every time they would take down my height, my weight, check, recheck all of my medications and do all this kind of like due diligence really before you ever see the GP. And so after over time, it was like they were charting it. And so after over time, my GP would say well for this many appointments you've had a blood pressure of xyz or for this many appointments you've had an elevated heart rate and so i was able to discover well you know in in my 20s that i was uh, tachycardic all the time and i was not and it wasn't just because i was it was like a white coat syndrome it was i was constantly tachycardic but when i came from the us to the uk it took another several years to diagnose POTS, which is postural orthota- orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So I knew in my 20s, but now I'm in my 40s. And it took that long for a common diagnosis. So it's, it's really interesting how when you go to the GP here, you don't go through the, those data points. And I, th- I've never experienced that at my GP. I don't know if it is different in different trusts, but I've never had my, my blood pressure taken each time. I've never been weighed each time. I've never been asked are all my medications accurate? I've never been asked, am I taking anything new? I've never been asked if there's been changes to my, my eating. Have, am I eating more? Am I eating less? I've never been asked about psychological factors. And so to me, that, that data point, those data points and that data plotting could really help our NHS predict. Yeah, I think,
1: you know, having patients as partners in the diagnostic journey is important, you see. And if you, you've got all the data points in terms of num- numerical data points. But if you think of, um, are you familiar with like narrative-based medicine where you, you're taking the patient's story? So you've got qualitative data. So if you, for example, you've, you had the, like a 20-year difference, a gap between when you first had symptoms to when you actually got the final diagnosis. So you've got a story. You hold all that data in your narrative in in the words that you say. So the way that I've done the the, the qualitative analysis is that interviewing the people who took part, for example, I'm doing it currently with with other other studies at Swansea University and things like that. So you've got, imagine you've got thousands of words on a page, okay, that you've collected over. So your story is thousands, like a book. It's got reams and reams, like a long ream, (laughs) loads of words. And if you sort of take some of that, and you've taken one, a word that keeps coming up. So you tell me a word that kept coming up over those years related to your symptoms.
0: Tachycardia. Is it a pain? Or...
1: Tachycardia. And so if you said, right, oh, she said tachycardia that date and on that date. So you take all the words tachycardia. How often does that come? Right. And then you take another word. As it said, tachycardia, sleeping. Oh, tachycardia sleeping although like, those two of cheese wakes it wakes her up so that's that's a pattern a words pattern and then tachycardia sleep exercise tachycardia sleep what and so what I'm saying is that when you get people's stories you can treat the words like you do the numbers that's my thing that's what I do
0: it, it so it's kind of mind-blowing so to hear you, that when, you, when you're actually explaining
1: it that way I'm sorry I just had to yeah, say that cause to think of it like a medical professional would and then you get the robustness then so if you said like these are kimberly's stories she's done this narrative and she's just spoken to um someone who doesn't have to be a medical professional just someone who can record your your stories of just your diagnostic story over the last two decades or whatever and then you put all the I use En Vivo, I love En Vivo. Anybody out there from En Vivo land? I love you. Because I put everything into En Vivo and I'm able to then analyse the words as if they were numbers. And then what I have done is I cross-reference words then. So I've used, I used um, a sort of methodology that I've done to be able to cross-reference words to find something. So it might be that I'm finding in your story, I don't know if it's true, but tachycardia and sleep, let's say, which is an unusual thing. And and then you're finding that it wakes you up. Oh right, okay, so that's what's happening with Kimberly. Let's see what Jane's story is. She oh Jane's saying tachycardia and sleep. What about John? His story. Oh, John's saying tachycardia, sleep, and headache. Oh, okay. And then you've asked two hundred people, and they're all coming out with tachycardia sleep and headache. That's a pattern. And then you've on top of that, then you've got all your physiological measurements of high blood pressure. So you've got two data sets that you could put together to be able to give a full picture or red flags or whatever of this particular condition. That's it. That's all I'm suggesting. Having a mixed methodology when you're doing stuff can give a more robust approach, I think. To, especially when you've got rare conditions, because sometimes it's it's this anomalous thing that nobody's even thought of to put together, because it's not a common ailment. You wouldn't think to put those two things together, but because it's rare, you you, you get in you get in somewhere then.
0: So two things I'm thinking are, if I'm a patient at home listening. This is really fascinating, and this is something that I could start doing. Um, this It's actually something I did start doing when I first moved to the UK, is I took all of my medical records and did look for common patterns because I'm a nerd. Mm. And that's a whole other story for a whole other time. But we will know that there are people who have kept journals or who have kept symptom logs, um, or other types of data collection that they may not think of as data Mm. collection, but it really is. Exactly.
1: That's the whole point, because I feel that the medical model... Okay, I'm so sorry, guys, but the medical model dominates. And when you have to find a cure, it's absolutely right and proper, okay? Because you need to be able to have the physiological measurements. What I'm suggesting is that the patients as partners in this can... Hopefully help that diagnostic journey because they've got narratives, they're wounded storytellers, they've got all that sort of their bodies have voices so that they can put into that data set. So you can triangulate it so you can get the stories, the qualitative stuff and add to the quantitative stuff to get an additional sort of robustness to the data set, to the process and so on. And that's where I feel that uh, uh, if you had a clinical research design, you know, go into the patient at the end of the design and say, what do you think? And woe will be tied. Somebody says, oh, it's rubbish. Start again because they won't be. They'll just ask someone else who will agree. They'll just keep asking people until finally someone will agree. So it's not really <laughs> a valid test, really. But um, yeah, so if you have a, the, the, you know, if you have a design, then include it in the beginning. You know, include, you know, how are you going to widen the participation, be more inclusive right at the beginning? Oh, and a little plug for, for us and RareQual, or me, um, is working with Dr. Emmeline in uh, Cardiff University. They've had funding from the Michael J. Fox Foundation to do some research into Parkinson's, and they want to widen the participation of more diverse voices. And they've asked us to do yes, that. Yes, they have. I know. To help them with the design. So I'm really pleased about that. And that starts. Uh, oh, Oh my God! Let me see. What time is it? You know that starts in January.
0: You about gave me a heart attack. I was like, <laughs> "What? What? What? what?
1: Yeah, <laughs> why are you, you?" That starts in January. So I'm really pleased about that. I was like, yeah. "I was about... so that's the University of doing that.
0: I was about to say, "Why are you talking to me right now?" Then why are you not over there? Like, don't talk to me.
1: No, no, it's all remote. I won't be going anywhere. Um... <laughs> but I was really pleased. I thought, "Oh, thank you." You know, it's like I felt. As though people didn't get what I was trying to say for years about being more inclusive and about inclusive research and so on. But it seems as though it's becoming a thing. So I'm really pleased about inclusivity and so on. And I'm not just talking about inclusivity in terms of race. For those who think that that's all it's about, it's about people who are ultra rare conditions or people who with physical differences. And um, like one of the women was saying, the stigma around her condition was that she felt health and social care practitioners perhaps didn't want to. She felt stigmatized by them, which is really hard um, because of her skin difference and everything. Some people feel that if they have a skin condition that they're infectious. Yeah. And, you know, all these sort of issues that they have to deal with. So, yeah. So it's inclusion, not just about race. It's people with differences, people who are excluded for a variety of different reasons. So it might be lack of understanding about the religious aspects of the of how they manage the rare conditions, who marries who, the genetics around that. You know, you know, people don't necessarily want to be coming to a clinic where they're going to be preached at about their their family beliefs and so on. But that's what happens. So some people feel that they can't go to the clinic or they don't feel that they want to go to the clinic because, you know, maybe some some of them are not happy with the way that they live their lives for whatever reason. Do you know what I mean? So there's lots of people who are excluded for... Physical reasons or psychosocial or economic reasons.
0: Religion is a factor in terms of people participating in research and people providing their samples for research and studies. There is the economic issues that surround whether people can travel. There are, as you were saying, people with something like neurofibromatosis, where they may have large skin related issues people might yes, fear them yeah. and so they feel stigmatized and therefore don't participate
1: exactly and they have to sit in an open clinic and you know and they yeah and all this sort of quite traumatic for certain people as well you know and offering people um reimbursement after they've forked out the money for the do you know how much it is to get from one end of the uk to the other on a train if the clinic's in london it's a lot if, <laughs> It's a, it's a lot of money, you know, and to, you know, to offer reimbursement is wonderful, but after they've found the money to get, it it literally will be, yeah, I go to clinic or I eat one or the other. And that the, people are having to make decisions as, as fundamental as that, you know, and there are some really good uh, support and charities and so on who will give people grants to be able to do that. And also there are some clinics who do um, outreach and they will take the clinic to the community if you like, or the nurses or the teams to the community, which is, again, really great. So if there are any services, I know of some actually services who do that, tell people it's best practice, let people know that that's what you do. Because all these sorts of things is is about improving inclusion and having not just a medical model, but a psychosocial model that supports the whole person, not just Bits of people.
0: That's what we don't hear okay. enough in the conversation is what you've just said. Yeah. We we hear, you know, about other pieces, but that piece is not something that we hear enough about. Mm. So give us some shout outs before we finish up this episode.
1: Well, shout out to the Rare, um, RareQual team. Thank you very much. <laughs> I also have to say um, a really good big thank uh, thank you to um, Chester University. I did my um, PhD there and my um, my supervisor was Associate Professor Dr. Andrew Mitchell, who is also the co-chair of Adira with me. And he has had such faith in me because um, I was going to give up on my PhD because I was going through a bit of a, a tough time at one point, And I thought, oh, I'm not doing this, it's too hard. Um, but he did warn me if I wanted to do mixed methods it is hard it's like doing two phd's in one but i've come out with these fabulous skills now you see yay but it was it was hard so he really helped me to see my potential because i absolutely was going to just not completed um and just thank you to um you know the people who have been supporting rare qual and hopefully we'll keep going we've been going for 2 years now and hopefully we will start to get some funds because we are, we run on no funds basically we run on pro bono little bits here little bits there but i just want to finally say that rare qual in the new year we will become in the RareQual charity And the social enterprise section, we are turning that into a a business. So we are going to be RareQual Consulting. We've had a conversation, Kimberly, haven't we? So there are the great and the good of us with lived experience in the rare disease world, with lots of skills and expertise. We will be the foundation of RareQual Consulting. We are approaching people. It's going to be invitation only. Sorry, guys. It'll be invitation only of people we feel have unique skills so that we can work together on projects like you know the projects with parkinson's with the michael j fox foundation i've got another project i've been approached by an organization in europe so we'll be starting that as well in january so there's different things that are coming our way and we will be able to do it from our own lived experience but also people are more than one thing so those people for example when i went on a conference and i had to choose am i either a researcher or a person of colour, or BAME, as they put it, um, I had to choose one or the other. So stop, stop doing that, please. People can be more than one, (laughs) people can be more than one thing. And the consultancy, we will have us, you know, like yourself, you are more than one or two or three things. You're so fabulous, Kimberly. So working together, you and I and the other people who are going to be in our consultancy, Hopefully that will be really good going forward for 2023. That was a pretty
0: powerful shout out, if I do say so. And normally I like to give the shout out too. And I I think you said it all there because I, I... I very much agree. I'm very much looking forward to everything that 2023 has to has in store for all of us. And uh, the, I look forward to the good that we can do together. Um, one quick thing before we finish out is that I would really love to do another mini episode, which I mentioned to you before, where we can go a little bit more into depth to some of these things that we've kind of touched on about Adira. So if we can do a 15-minute mini episode sometime in the new year. Great. Thank you. Thanks to Dr. Sandra Butterworth for joining us for today's episode of Signalize a Dazzle for a podcast. As usual, in the description for this podcast episode, we will be leaving links to where you can find Sandra, as well as RareQual and other projects on social media. So go ahead and head over to your podcast platform of choice to find that information in the description, or you could head over to our Podbean page. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Signalize, a Dazzle for Rare podcast. To stay up to date on the podcast and Dazzle for Rare, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at D-A-Z-Z-L-E, the number four, rare, R-A-R-E. And finally, if you liked this episode, share it with a friend and tag us on social media platforms.